Hello, Aaron Wren here. I wanted to let you know that this week's podcast with Pastor Andrew Brunson has excellent content, but we experienced some technical difficulties on the recording, so there are some audio quality issues. Rest assured, this was on our end, not yours, and hopefully we won't have too many repeats of this in the future. Thank you very much for listening. Hello, this is Aaron Wren, and welcome back to the show. I'm excited and honored today to have very special guest, uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson. I first heard the name Andrew Brunson probably back in 2017 when during the prayers of the people at my church on Sundays in New York, we would pray for his release from a Turkish prison where he had been unjustly held for two years in what turned into an international diplomatic incident. And so it's an incredible honor, Pastor Brunson, to have you here to talk about your experience today. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. I'm glad to be with you. I've been reading your articles for the last couple of years, so. <laughs> yeah, somebody told me that, and that was an incredible honor. I'm like, wow, this guy reads me? Oh, wow, uh, that's, a, that's amazing. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Mexico, parents were missionaries. So, yeah. So you were a children of missionaries then? I'm a missionary kid, yeah. Yeah, so that's why, is that what drew you to wanting to be a missionary? I was going to ask that. Uh, well, there were seven of us. I'm the oldest of seven, and I'm the only missionary. So if it was only <laughs> my parents' influence, then that's uh, not sufficient. No, I have a uh, maybe an unusual story with that. Uh, Hudson Taylor, uh, some of your uh listeners may have, viewers may have heard of him. He was a missionary to China, a very well-known missionary, very influential back in the 1800s. When he was an old man, a man took her two children to him and said, I want you to, to pray for my two sons and set them aside for missions. And he laid hands on them and he prayed for them. And both of them, when they were older, uh, they became missionaries to Korea. Uh, one of them, Stanley Solto, uh, when he was uh, an old man, he right before he died, actually, my mother took me and my younger sister to him and said, what, what Hudson Taylor did for you, I want you to do for my children. So he laid hands on us and he prayed for us and set us aside for missions. And I, I remember uh, I had this uh, shadowy uh, memory in my mind because I got a spanking right after that uh, because I was acting up. And that kind of sealed it and engraved it in my mind. <laughs> uh, and from that time, I mean, I was three years old. It's one of my earliest memories. Uh, from that time, I had a very strong uh, drive toward mission. So I think that there was uh, something that came from uh, Hudson Taylor to Stanley Soto that then uh, came to me, just that blessing of being set aside for missions. And so even when I was uh, uh, in my teen years, I wasn't really walking with the Lord. Uh, if someone asked me, what are you uh, going to do uh, when, you, when you're older? I'd say, well, if I survive this period of my life, I know I'm supposed to be a missionary. And so it was just very deep inside of me. And this, this is really what has driven me all these years. How did you end up in Turkey? Well, um, not by choice. Uh, we were headed toward uh, the Arab world, my wife and I, to Egypt, and our uh, denomination, uh, we were with a Presbyterian group uh, at that time, they asked us to go to Turkey instead, and we really didn't want to go. When uh, we got on the plane, my wife was crying, 
you know, oh, this is the end of my life, that kind of thing. And uh, we, we did not want to be there. But uh, over, over the years, uh, during the first maybe four years or so, the Lord just, uh, uh, I don't know, put a determination in us. I think that he put some of his love for the Turks uh, into our hearts. And I say this love was expressed not so much in emotions or, you know, uh, the idealistic uh, loving of the culture and uh, things like that. Uh, although we did come to love many things about about Turkey, but it was more of a of a love expressed in uh, commitment to see God's blessing come to those people, and that drove us over the years through um, through many uh, difficulties uh, through because of the kind of work we did. We were uh, we started to do church planting. Uh, Turkey is a is a Muslim country. It's the largest evangelized country in the world. Very few, most Turks have never met a Christian in their lives. So the approach we took was to have a very uh, public ministry that would attract seekers. Uh, so kind of we're saying, hey, we're the Christians, we're over here. Uh, because mm -hmm. most of them have never met a Christian. And so if they have questions, where do they go? Uh, this was in the years, uh, you know, before everyone could easily access everything through their phones, uh, just on the internet. And so uh, we wanted to become known as this is a place where there are Christians, and if you have questions, we'll answer your questions. And so that meant we had a, a public ministry uh, called in several church plants, and uh, this meant there were also threats. Uh, we had uh, death threats, bomb threats. One time uh, a gunman came from a city where we were planting a church um, and uh, attacked us. Uh, he shot at me, <laughs> and... So, so that was one of the things that uh, having a public ministry in Turkey, anyone who has a public ministry could face the same things, uh, just uh, that kind of those threats and, and some level of risk. Yes. You know, oh, I... oh, the reason I was saying that is we, we drove through those things because we just had a certainty that this is the assignment God had for us. And mm. so, you know, we, uh, the first time we had uh, death threats, thought, how do we deal with this? I have three young children. And uh, I said, well, my wife and I decided uh, God has given us an assignment to be here. We'll leave as soon as he tells us to leave. I'll the next plan out if he tells me to leave. But otherwise, I stand until he releases me uh, and assume that he will protect me unless he doesn't. And if he doesn't, it will be because it will bring greater glory to him not to protect me. So, uh, you know, emotionally, I, that was difficult to do. It's time for our emotions to line up our, with our decisions. Uh, but uh, after that, uh, whenever there were threats, it's like, no, we've, when, when I was shot at, for example, our children were very upset, mm. obviously. But we say, well, uh, and some, some people in the church told us, well, now you're going to leave, right? We said, no, we're not going to leave until God tells us to leave. Wow. Uh, we had already made those decisions before and, and kind of factored in the rest to, to some degree. And that just helped us to press through uh, difficulties. Yes, a friend of mine uh, who started a church in Worcester, Massachusetts, he told this story about, you know, he, he somehow ended up there by accident, basically in Worcester. He never planned to go there. It was not the kind of community he wanted to go to. And then he started making these connections and he sort of fell in love with it. And one of his 
rules of thumb about whether you're supposed to be in a place is if you end up someplace that you didn't plan to go and <laughs> you end up connect, you know connecting with it and bearing fruit there that's a good sign <laughs> and so yeah i actually visited turkey once in probably 2002 2003 i went to a wedding there i spent a week in the country i thought it was a wonderful country i mean the people were extremely hospitable to me there uh there's a lot of history obviously at the same time, I've heard that it is not a hospitable place for Christians to be, and that you know it is an officially Muslim country, and that there are severe restrictions on what Christians are allowed to do in the country. Like you can't build churches, you can't do this, you can't do that. You obviously experience some of that. Well, as as you said, uh, the Turks are very hospitable. There are some very good things about their culture. Uh, but uh, Turkey actually was, they were the head of the uh, Ottoman Empire and uh, they conquered, they, they had a, a vast empire and they ruled in the name of Islam and that covered the Balkan countries, uh, Middle East and North Africa. So it was, it was huge. And they imposed Islam. Uh, a Turkish pastor told us, uh, we the Turks were the sword of Islam. And they were the sword. They conquered many peoples, and they also suffocated any where they went. Uh, there was also, um, uh, at the end of, well, uh, 110 years ago, 20 years ago, Turkey was uh, had 20% Christian, and uh, now they have almost 0%. Yeah. So they got rid of them. Uh, and so there, there's a very friendly culture, but there's also... Uh, a deep-seated anti-Christian, you know, feeling. Uh, there's a deep-seated animus toward Christians. Now, uh, actually, in comparison to the countries around it, uh, there's a lot of freedom. Uh, and most of the persecution that Turks encountered, everyone in our church uh, who became a believer from a Muslim background, uh, they... They knew that once they professed faith and if their family found out about it, their social circle did, that's where the pressure would come from. Uh, the government does put some pressure on, but most of it is just from family. And uh, it's very difficult because they're a, uh, they're a group-oriented uh, society. Uh, we're very individualistic as Westerners, but, but for them, for their family to reject them, for their society, their, their friends to reject them, uh, maybe they can't get a job sometimes. Uh, a Muslim spouse will divorce the spouse of a Christian. And so it's, uh, it, it is difficult for them. Uh, but when people ask me about persecution in Turkey, I say, well, you know, it's, it's going to get worse. Right now, there's still a lot of freedom. In fact, there's been what we would say is a high degree of freedom with a low interest in the gospel. And that's starting to change so that there's less freedom and there's more interest. Interest is rising. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you were there for 25 years, right? We were there uh, 25 years, yes. 23 uh, just doing uh, ministry uh, with uh, no, no clue what the last two years would be like and the last two years in prison. By the way, let me say I had two years in prison, but I did not know it would be two years. Uh, I did not know I would... Uh, be set free until the very day that I was set free. And the Turkish government had to give me three life sentences, plus 35 years on top of that, just to make sure. But it was, you know, three wow. life sentences. 
So it's living with, uh, with that uncertainty. Am I ever going to get out of here? Otherwise, if I knew for sure it's going to be two years and I can count the days and it would still be difficult, I still would have broken, but, but I would have, you know, an end in mind. It's, it's the uncertainty uh, that I was living with, you know, not knowing if I would ever get out that, that really was, was crushing. Yeah. How did you end up in jail? Well, um, I mean, the mechanics of it uh, is that my wife and I were called into a local police station. We thought we were going to pick up our long-term visas. As we'd lived there for 23 years, we qualified to have a, a permanent residence, and we had applied for it. And then they surprised us. They said, well, there's an order to deport you. And uh, that really shocked us. We, you know, we, we built up a ministry. We were very uh, engaged in Turkey and planned to be the rest of our lives. Uh, and so this really surprised us. Uh, they put us into uh, a detention center uh, while they arranged the deportation. That should only take about a day, but it stretched into two weeks, and they uh, wouldn't let the American consul visit us. They wouldn't let anyone come in. And uh, then after two weeks, they released my wife, and they put me into uh, a different system. They transferred me in the middle of the night to another detention center and then into the prison system. So that's just the mechanics of outwork. Now, why they did that, uh, I, well, <laughs> I think God had something to do with it. I think I think he is, uh, this was an assignment from him, actually. I don't think he put me into prison. I think this was a satanic attack mm -hmm. uh, against us, intended to knock us out. Uh, but I do think, as I, as I look back, I just see he was very involved in the entire process because of the things he intended to do with my imprisonment. They kept me there. They accused me of all kinds of things. Uh, the major things were that I'm a spy, that I am uh, support terrorism, was involved with two different terrorist groups, that I tried to overthrow the government. There was a, a, a coup attempt, and they said that I helped to engineer that, to plan it. All kinds of other things. Some of it was kind of comical. They said that I was the... Uh, CIA uh, station chief, and they said, no, I was a CIA head for the whole Middle East. Then it was like, no, actually, Andrew was going to become the head of the CIA in Washington if he had been successful in the coup attempt. And, you know, all kinds of things like that that yeah. are ridiculous. Um, but they knew that it wasn't true. This was being led, uh, done by the government at a very high level uh, from very early on. And I think what was... Uh, it was first. It was uh, intended to intimidate other Christians, uh, the Christian uh, population, as well as have other missionaries uh, just self-deport, leave the country because no one had been put in prison for their faith uh, in living memory. And so, this is something a new factor that pe a new cost people would have to factor in, and some some did leave. Uh, so I think it started out that way. Is religious persecution, and then they also it turned into uh, trying to leverage me uh, to gain concessions from the United States. A very long, long list of things they would ask for. Uh, when they put me on trial, uh, one of the accusations was uh, trying to that I was trying to Christianize Christianization, so trying to divide Turkey politically by Christianizing people. So. Anyway, yeah, okay. I, I, the God story is a human story, and the human story is, you know, intimidation, 
looking for political leverage. And the God story is, you know, that he was using it all along for, I mean, I became one of the most prayed for people in the world. And I just became a, a lightning rod drawing in that from millions of people around the world into Turkey. And I think that's uh, something that is going to prepare Turkey for a powerful move of God. Yeah. In fact, you know, again, uh, one of our commenters here, appliance guy, we prayed for you regularly. Yeah, I remember in church. And uh, did you know when you were in prison, like how many people were praying for you all around the world? I, I didn't know how many, uh, <laughs> but uh, so my wife stayed in Turkey. She was released after two weeks, and then she remained there at, at some rest to herself. She was the only person who was allowed to visit me. And uh, she was the only Christian I had any contact with for those two years. And so she was really my lifeline. And I would, I would ask her, you know, she'd, when she got permission, she could come to the prison. There's a, a time, every cell has a certain visit time that they're allowed. Uh, and uh, they would, we would meet through, you know, glass and bars and on, on phone. And I would ask her, are people praying for me? And this was, I was somehow desperate. I was desperate to get out and be with my family uh, or to, you know, have some idea. Is there any end in sight to this? But uh, I would always ask our people praying. There was just this desperate need to know that there were, that I wasn't forgotten, that there were other believers standing with me. And she would tell me, yes, there are people praying. And as it started to spread, she would tell me now they're praying in this place. They're praying in that country. And we began to see over time that, that this was supernatural prayer movement, far beyond what my wife could have arranged just through different networks, uh, that it was God-initiated, God-driven, God-sustained. So that was very encouraging to me. And for any of your listeners who prayed for me, I want to, want to thank them. Yeah. You know, it really was amazing uh, what happened with your imprisonment is very quickly, what, how exactly the government decided to arrest you, it very quickly was escalated to the presidential level within Turkey, where President Erdogan was trying to get the United States to extradite this guy. We've got Fatola Gulen, or however you pronounce his name. They're trying to use you as a bargaining chip uh, for all these things. You know, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, is talking about it. 78 members of Congress sent a letter to Turkey protesting it. You know, European Union uh, deputies are sending protest letters. I mean, this was a major international diplomatic incident. Did you know that this was going on? Sure. Well, th there were a lot of things happening behind the scenes that we weren't completely aware of. But my wife uh, would, uh, every, every two months, once every two months, uh, we're allowed to be in the same room together uh, for, you know, in one of the prisons for 35 minutes and the other. <clears throat> and I, when they put me in maximum security prison, I thought it was going to be much worse, but I got a, an entire hour of mm -hmm. visitation. That was like gold to me. Um, and then at that point, my wife could tell me more of what was happening uh, because, uh, you know, we were we could be next to each other and she could speak privately to me. Uh, so I did know that things were happening, but the, the truth is, so uh, after two months, there were, seven, I think, uh, 17 senators or something like that that signed a letter. So that's already amazing to have 17 senators uh, do that. And that was at the, like at the two-month mark. 
And that went straight to the president of Turkey. And his answer to that was to put me into prison, uh, into high security prison. And so my situation became much worse, actually. And President Trump asked for my release at a summit uh, three times. He asked for my release uh, at about the nine month mark. And the answer then was to put me into maximum security prison. And so at that point, I had a real collapse, actually, uh, following that, because it's, it's gone to the presidential level. There's, humanly speaking, you can't go any higher. And, uh, and it had not secured my release. And so that can be very discouraging. You know, the president has already intervened. He's mm -hmm. already three times asked for my release, and they're just doubling down, and it's getting worse. And he kept me another 17 months after that, after uh, President Trump was from my release. Uh, so, uh, but yes, it was pretty amazing how, at what level, I mean, Trump was involved at an unprecedented level. Presidents don't get involved negotiating for hostages. But um, there were many, many times he, he asked for my release. Uh, he directed those under him to do so. Uh, it ended up affecting how... Uh, U.S. policy was formed for a time, the relationship with Turkey. So it, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. What was going on with you spiritually when you're in prison? I mean, how did you feel about things with relationship to God? Yeah, so uh, this is what really surprised me is because uh, I, I mentioned to you we'd had threats and, you know, attacks and things like that. And I was, uh, I was a pretty relatively strong uh, missionary, I would say. Uh, and I, if, if someone had Andrew, you're going to spend time in Turkish prison, I would have been afraid, but I also would have had a sense of, of confidence because of the biographies I've read, my own walk with God, you know, thinking, you know, I've, I've had intimacy with God for years, pursued that. And uh, surely I will have a sense of strength and of uh, grace. I did have grace, but it was mostly felt grace but a sense of, uh, of joy, just all, all the things that we kind of get from our uh, reading of uh, biographies. And uh, the reality is once I ended up in prison, I, I broke very quickly. There, there were reasons why I broke, you know, the isolation was in isolation for time. The fear uh, meant that I, the release of stress hormones related to fear. I had lots of panic attacks, I couldn't sleep. So the lack of sleep, sleep deprivation, and isolation started to break me down. The uncertainty that I mentioned, where basically there's no uh, guarantee that I will ever be with my family again, with mm. my wife, with my children, uh, that I could just be left here to die in a Turkish prison cell uh, after years and years on my own, uh, cut off from everybody. So all of those things... Uh, was moved from isolation into uh, the high security prison. I was put into a cell built for eight people, but there were 22 or 23 of us in there, and you're in the cell 24-7. So it was a very crowded and very intense, and I, I was no longer isolated physically, but I was the only Christian uh, in my, during the entire prison time. And so I didn't have anyone who could correct me when I'm thinking wrong thoughts. Uh, who could uh, encourage me, who could pray with me. And so uh, for all of those reasons, I would have broken. But what took me into spiritual crisis, I knew I was experiencing was persecution. I didn't like it, but I understood that intellectually. 
but I felt abandoned by God. And I lost any sense of his presence, uh, any way that I had experienced this in the past. And I don't want people to think it's just an emotional thing I'm talking about. There was just any sense of experienced grace or any way that I saw his love in the past uh, or felt had an intimacy with him. It's like it was cut off and I was in darkness. And uh, I, that really surprised me. And I became, my heart was deeply wounded toward God. But like, I'm suffering for you. Where are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I feel abandoned. I feel like I've lost your voice and your presence. And, and uh, where is my kind and gentle father? And uh, so I, that led to what I call the offended heart. I was deeply wounded and offended toward God. And I started to question his existence. You know, is, is God really there? Do you really exist, God? And, uh, and then accusing him, you know, don't know that you're really loving or faithful or, or completely good or completely truthful. Mm. And so just a lot of accusation coming from that offended heart. And that took me into deep crisis with him. And uh, I was losing my, losing my with God. I became suicidal in my first year. Uh, I just was uh, under tremendous pressure, but I also had, didn't have a lot of hope. And, uh, you know, when I landed in prison, I thought if I have your presence, I can do anything. You know, I can endure anything as long as I have your presence with me. And then it's like, it's gone, <laughs> and uh, and and I collapsed. But so you know, I, I think it's like a, it's just like a Psalm twenty two moment. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like I felt that way. Yes, and it's more than an emotion. You know, Jesus, Jesus also. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, so uh, an agony for him, and uh, if he. You know, people say to me, uh, well, you know, that's, you know, that didn't objectively, I can say objectively speaking, God did not forsake me. Uh, but but he did cut me off from every way in which I, I related mm. to him. And he, he can do that. I think that part of my testing uh, was that he removed the sense of presence, the sense of his voice, any uh, way in which I had experienced or perceived his love in the past. And he stripped me of all Christian fellowship, of my family, of everything. Did you have a Bible with you? I did after a few months, after at around the five or six month mark, I got a Bible. Mm -hmm. So I'm stripped of all of these things. And now what am I going to do? Am I going to love him? Am I going to be faithful to him? Uh, and that was part of my test, was to have all of that removed. Now, I, I have friends who have been to prison for their faith. Jesus appeared in their cell to them. They had like an encounter with Jesus in their cell. And, and I begged for that, and I did not get it. You know, And uh, a friend of mine, a theologian, said, you're actually part 
part of what God was doing, if I had had those experiences, uh, it would have been, I think, easier than the experience that I did have. And he wanted to really strip me of everything because what came out of this, uh, when I'm stripped completely and I still press in and love him and I'm faithful to him, then that's a, that's a tested and proven love. And that's very valuable to the Lord. And, and for me, now that I've been through it, it's very valuable to me. You know, I, I know that I love their extreme circumstances and, and, uh, and I'm, that I'm a proven son. So I just want to say, though, that the, the breaking was that first year. Then the second year, he did rebuild me. And that's really the what people most relate to. I speak is the breaking side because they expect me to come out and you know, you know, I'm you know, a tough guy went to prison and everything was great and wonderful. Let me tell you, you know, about it. And I know I say actually I broke, and most people can relate to that because most people have weaknesses and have failed at times. And and the. But the redemptive part of it is that God rebuilt my heart. And I went from accusing him and questioning his existence and uh, and being suicidal to uh, in the second year going through a rebuilding process. Uh, he didn't give me a sense of presence. He didn't give me a sense of his voice or any of those things. But there were there was a rebuilding that I went through just impressing in and disciplines, uh, trying, you know, uh, forming a new new mindsets that end, I end up coming out of prison stronger than when I went in and with a deeper intimacy than I had before. Deeper well, and, and different, different mm-hmm. also different intimacy. Well, that's a, that's an amazing story mm-hmm. there. It's so easy to read, you know, these stories of people like Paul being in prison but that's kind of completely different. I mean, I, I can't, I, I know I would not do well if I got thrown into prison. Let me put it to you that way. And, you know, you had to go through something that, you know, most of us like hope we never have to go through and to come through that, you know, you have faced the test. I mean, there's gotta be something that feels good about that. Like, you know, uh, you know, the, the test, I faced the test and obviously, you know, it was God who sustained you through that. I keep coming back to all the Psalms that talk about he will not allow your foot to slip to like, it's the perseverance of the saints, but nevertheless, the, the testing is real and you know, it, it's got to enter in kind of like a new dimension of your faith. It, it does. And, and I have a different perspective on some of these things because I think that sometimes, you know, I came out rebuilt, uh, but there are people who, don't come out rebuilt. They, they're broken and they stay broken. And, uh, I was one of my heroes in prison. Uh, I was, uh, Richard Wurmbrandt. He was a, uh, Romanian pastor in under the communist regime in Romania was held in prison 14 years, uh, tortured and all that. Uh, He founded voice of the martyrs. And, uh, he, in one of his books, I read about other people who were imprisoned with him who, uh, went insane. You know, they were in prison because of their faith and they lost their minds. 
And I understood this relate to it because I felt like I tasted insanity sometimes myself in prison, uh, just uh, with the with the breaking that I went through. Uh, but there's also something inside me that reacts, and I think many believers react to this because it doesn't seem right. You know, isn't the grace of God you know sufficient for this? Because my grace is sufficient for you, Jesus says. And uh, why was the grace of God not sufficient for these men so that they lost their minds? And the way Vermbrandt answered this is he said, their insanity is beautiful to God. And this really stuck with me. And I, I, um, I think what he meant is, you know, everything has been made right. They're in heaven. They have no regrets over this. They carry an honor for eternity because of the price they paid. And it was a beautiful sacrifice to God. Their insanity, you could say, is beautiful to God in the sense that it came as a sacrifice uh, of suffering uh, for his sake. You know, they didn't renounce him uh, and escape uh, persecution. Instead, they remained faithful and the pressure broke their minds. So it's a beautiful sacrifice. But how does that fit into our theology of suffering? You know, their insanity was mm. beautiful. Uh, and uh, I think... You know, it's been made right now, but it wasn't made right in this life. In this life, they died in prison, insane. And I, uh, this is the reality of, you know, I, I came to, to see, you know, we're human, we break, and God allows it. He allows us to break sometimes. And so uh, I, came, I came out of prison uh I didn't come out with a lot of answers. Mm. Uh, I, I, I had many questions and doubts in prison. And I ended up, well, I'll tell you what I did. It's very practical. I visualized a lockbox and I put the questions and doubts into the lockbox and I locked it securely, uh, you know, visually. And I said, God, you and I are the only ones who can open this box. If you want to open it and answer my questions while I'm in prison, you want to deal with my doubts, I'd be very glad if you do that. Uh, but as for me, with my will, I make a decision that I will not open this box. I will not entertain these questions anymore. I'm not going to give a place in my mind to doubt. Uh, and, you know, the, the critical thing is I do not have to have answers to have a relationship with you. So I'm, I'm in a sense giving up, not that I have a right, but I'm giving up my demands to understand and to have answers. And uh, after this, God didn't suddenly give me answers. Like, okay, Andrew, you, I said, okay, God, I learned my lesson. Now you can, you know, <laughs> ease up a bit, you know. Uh, but, but he didn't. And I had to, I still had questions and doubts, and I had to send them to that box. It was a matter of discipline. And so I became very focused on, uh, I am not going to allow questions and doubts to, to ruin my relationship with God and to come between us. I don't have to have answers. And just living with uncertainty. And uh, that's, that was a huge turning point for me. Not that I began to get answers, but that I, could, I couldn't receive truth. My wife would speak truth to me or not. By then I had a Bible. I'd read truth and there's always a yes, but that it would come from me. 
And once I just made that decision, you know, put those question answers, uh, questions and doubts away, there was a stranglehold that broke, and I was able to receive receive truth again. So I mean, that's that was one of the steps for rebuilding that took place. I still have questions. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of questions in a sense because I put them away. Uh, but I think there's a reality to here, here's one of the things that, that I, I try to underline for people is persecution can be more difficult than we expect. And, you know, I had seen persecution in Turkey, obviously, but, but uh, what I underwent would be intense for me. And people tend to think, especially leaders, they say, well, persecution is good. But it purifies the church. And look how the church grew in China. I say, yes. Sometimes that happens, but I lived in the Middle East for 25 years. Mm. I've been involved for longer than that. And that used to be majority Christian. So and very few Christians now. So persecution can, uh, the church can grow under persecution. Sometimes persecution can also silence the church. And so uh, we shouldn't be naive and just, you know, the way that I was, you know, before I ended up in prison, uh, thinking, yeah, it is just going to be a, a great time with God in prison. You know, persecution is just going to make us really strong. It can. It can. But it can also break you. And, I, you know, I was talking with a Chinese, uh, one of the fathers of Chinese church. He'd been in prison. He was tortured. He remained faithful. His wife divorced him to escape the pressure. The two children. The son followed in the father's footsteps. He Tremendous pressure, but he remains faithful. The daughter follows the mother and just slides away from her faith to avoid the pressure. And so you have this, you know, one family, pressure, very different results. So persecution, uh, pressure, it, 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 can, it brings you to a point of crisis. It can drive you toward God. It can also drive you away. And this is my sense of urgency for the United States right now uh, is that I think there is a dark wave that is going to hit the church here. And most people aren't ready. And if they're not prepared, then it's very dangerous. And a lot of them can get knocked out. Hmm. How did you get out of prison and get back? So uh, the long story short is that there were many people who prayed for me. And that moved political leaders and... Uh, well, eventually there was uh, there was a level of pressure put on Turkey that led the president of Turkey to have me released. Uh, they released me by convicting me of terror crimes. So I'm a convicted terrorist and sentencing me and then telling me that I could uh, leave the country while I appealed the sentence. And so then, you know, very quickly, um, uh, the, the White House sent an Air Force plane to get my wife and me out of Turkey uh, as quickly as possible when that happened. So that's, the, that's how it happened. Uh, President Trump imposed some sanctions on Turkey. Foreign investors uh, got spooked by this. They withdrew en masse. They Turkish uh, stock market lost $40 billion overnight. Uh, that's $40 billion. That's a lot of money. Yep. And, uh, and their currency collapsed, which put
put the whole country in crisis because a, a number of companies have in foreign currency, euros and dollars. Right. And uh, so everybody was in crisis. Uh, and, but they still didn't release me. I still spent another two and a half months before they, they finally let me go. Uh, so it took a lot of pressure. The, the Economist magazine uh, wrote, the most expensive prisoner in the world. Wow. So that's, that's the level of pressure that it took. Wow. And then the day after you're released, you're in the Oval Office with President Trump, which I watched that live uh, on the internet when it was happening. That had to have been surreal. It was surreal. And... You know, if you think about the day before I'm in court, this is my fourth court session, and it's a political trial, but those can take years. You have a court session, then the next one is a few months down the road, and then another one a few months after that. So this was the fourth one, and and they convicted me. You know, I, I, I stood there as I was convicted and sentenced, and I thought, after all this pressure, I'm going back to prison. And... Uh, if this didn't get me out, what what can you know? Just feeling very hopeless, and uh, and I kind of tuned out. You know, standing in front of the judge and he's reading the sentence and all that. I kind of tuned out. I was thinking, okay, I hope they put me back in the same cell with my same cellmate, so I don't have to get used to new people. And and then my lawyer came over and said, "You can go." I said, "What?" <laughs> so it was very sudden. The U.S. government did not expect. I found later they had gamed four different scenarios, what they would say to the media uh, after this uh, fourth trial session. None of them involved my release, you know, and so it was, they were surprised. Um, and uh, then they were able to get us out. Somewhere, you know, in the, in the White House uh, a day later, this roller coaster of being convicted and sentenced, suddenly released, you know, quick exit from the country. And uh, I think that I actually felt a sense of dislocation. Uh, I'm of dis sure. Uh, that I think is a result of, I've been told that PTS is just one of the, I felt like it was happening to somebody else. Mm. Well, it's an incredible, uh, it's an incredible story what you went through in uh so glad that you got out as you as you said not everybody gets out and um you were you were fortunate there i want to ask you a question you were in turkey for 25 years and i'm sure you visited the united states but you were mostly in another country and now you've been living here and i think it was back in the 1970s uh, a british missionary named leslie newbegin came back from decades overseas and was shocked by what he saw in england and he's like, this is the mission field now. This is a country that's lost God and needs to be re-evangelized anew. What are some of your observations about America coming back here after 25 years living in Turkey? Yeah, so I, I looked at the U.S. as as the safe place, you know, and I, I suppose in some ways it was, but I, you know, grown up on the mission field, we come back, the church in the United States is strong. Uh, there's respect for Christianity uh, and certainly in comparison to the Muslim world, you know, there's, a, I mean, it's be, being a Christian when I came out of college, 
uh, you know, there's always some level of pressure if you're really radical for Jesus, but, but you know, I mean, you wrote a book about this, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. the negative world. And I think that explains it very well. I read your article on negative world, just the different phases. And I thought that explained it very well. Uh, and it really hit me when I came back. I think it intensified. We went into that negative world, uh, especially while I was in prison. And I came out and it was just shocking uh, to see uh, the level of uh, conflict, uh, disdain for Christianity. Now, to be honest, I think a lot of people are not aware of it in many places. Uh, when I speak about, you know, one of the things that I think God was doing with my imprisonment, and as I said, I broke uh, severely and repeatedly and, and thoroughly. And I had to learn in my weakness uh, to strengthen myself uh, just I could remain under under pretty uh, severe pressure, and I think that what the Lord was doing there was having me learn these things because He intends for me to encourage other people. I'm not saying that a lot of people are going to go to prison. I hope that's not the case, uh, but to encourage people with some of the things so that so that they can uh, remain faithful as well. And uh, when we returned to the states, I just began to for the first time in my life, to have a real burden for this country. Now, my wife and I are still missionaries. We're still focused on the Muslim world. But for the first time in my life, I'm at States, uh, kind of exposed for what it is now, uh, and and that sense of urgency that I mentioned before, that I, I think the pressure is coming. Many people are not prepared. And uh, there's kind of a sense of we came out of and you know, it's time to rebuild. It's time to expand again. And I keep hearing about, oh, the revival is going to come. And 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 I, I think God is going to move powerfully. But, wow, if you look at the numbers, you know, and uh, just the direction we're headed, I, what I say is we can't vote ourselves or pray ourselves out of what's coming. We can pray ourselves through it, but we can't vote or pray ourselves out of it. Mm. And I think people often are looking for for a political savior. Well, elect a conservative president who will turn everything around. And I say, well, even if you do, and we we should elect, you know, you know, courageous men and women who can carve out areas of freedom and protection for for believers. But our culture is so far gone that. All institutions that I think a political leader can't turn that around. They can affect some areas, but there's going to be persecution from all of the other institutions in our society and uh, social pressure, financial pressure. And I think it's going to knock a lot of people out. I think we're going to see a great exodus from the church. Yeah, that's... uh... That'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, they read, read books like Rod Rear's Benedict Adoption or his Live Not by Lies, which was about kind of communism. And they think, look, there's no persecution here. You guys are exaggerating it. Look, you know, Andrew Brunson was in a Turkish prison. That's persecution. 
China's got persecution. Their people are in prison. We don't have persecution here, which I think is right in a sense. But you also mentioned, you know, the social and the financial pressures. I like to give the example of, you know, they may have uh, beaten uh, Fall with rods. They might have stoned him. He might have been shipwrecked. They might have put him in prison. But nobody ever took away his ability to earn a living as a tent maker. And the loss of being able to feed your family, to have a job, there's different kinds of pressures here that are not the same as what you went through and hopefully never will be, but we shouldn't sell short how much pressure can be put on people in that way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, I don't think we're going to be North Korea or Iran or China, uh, but let's just say that it's, it's just being despised and looked down on or your job being canceled. Say that's not like going to prison. Uh, that's true, but it's very serious. It can be very, well, certainly the being canceled and the the financial pressure, losing your job can be very, very serious. And uh, you may pay, it may sound very glorious, you know, well, I'll do Jesus. Uh, And and God is absolutely going to reward uh, when we suffer for him. Uh, We will have no regrets in eternity. But in this life, you may pay a price for a long time and your loved ones may also suffer along with you. And that can be pretty significant. And so I don't minimize. I don't say, well, if it's not prison, then it's not tough. I think a lot of people are are going to, they're not going to be willing to pay that price. Uh, and uh, even just to be despised is, is very difficult. You know, the, 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 we're going through a transition and there's a, there's a real tension uh, in this country for believers because it's been a predominantly Christian culture. Culturally, it's been Christian. And, and we've had a lot of influence uh, on policy formation. And now that's changing and going to be living as a minority. I think you mentioned this in your book, you know, minorities think differently. I grew up as a minority and, uh, you know, on the mission field and worked for years as a part of a very small Christian minority in a Muslim country in Turkey. And we weren't telling our uh, people in our church, go out and challenge the culture, go challenge authority, <laughs> truth to power. No, we're, saying, we're really focused on we want to make sure you survive spiritually in a very hostile environment. So we're focusing on the Lordship of Jesus in your life, making sure you're just walking with him. And yes, of course, there's witness because they're known as Christians and their social circles see this. Uh, but we have a very different approach. And here in the States, we're still in that middle ground where we still can have an influence. We're still fighting to maintain uh, influence on our culture, but we're very quickly losing it. And that transition to thinking and acting as a minority is going to be very, very difficult, but it's one that we're going to have to make. Well, I agree, and I, that's incredible insight, I think, for people. Um, is there any final thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up? I don't know. Now I have to think of something really important. Uh, to say. You, you don't have to. I do. Oh, you know, I forgot to ask. What are, you, uh, what are you two doing now? Tell us about your new ventures. Well, in the States, the main thing is, is we are we're trying to prepare people here. I think there's an urgency to that. Uh, I'd like to uh, mention a video series. Uh, it's called Prepare to Stand. Uh, you can find it in several places if you just Google Andrew Brunson Prepare to Stand. 
It's a series of videos that Samaritan's first recorded for us. And I take some of the things that I learned in prison that helped me to, to, to strengthen myself and uh, share those. You know, how do we deal with uh, when we're afraid? How do we make right decisions even when we're afraid? Because I had a lot of fear. And I, I never came to a point where I didn't, you know, where I had no fear. I came to a point where in spite of fear, I could still make the right decisions and stand. Or how do we deal with the offended heart? Because I think that's going to knock a lot of people out. You know, when you're disappointed, you know, how do you respond? Uh, the things that fueled my endurance, you know. So so they're developing perseverance. There are things like that that can be helpful. So I, uh, these things are free. I'm not selling anything. But I think they could be helpful for a Sunday school uh, or home groups, short videos, 15 to 17 minutes intended to, to kind of uh, prepare people. Uh, otherwise, we're still involved in the Muslim world. You know, that's still our heart. We're still missionaries. Uh, since I have to say one last thing, uh, there, there's a Bible verse that, that kind of summarizes what my approach is right now. It's Daniel 11.32. And Daniel is speaking to... Uh, or writing for people who live in the most difficult times, uh, the darkest times. It says, the people who know their God shall stand and accomplish exploits. And we tend to, as Americans, to focus on the exploits, expansion, let's grow the church, all, all of those things. And I say right now is the time to focus on the first part of that. The people who know their God shall stand. If you, there, there's a wave coming. And if, if you're going to be standing after that wave hits, you need to know your God. And this is the most important thing that people can do. Uh, you know, people talk about preparing. If you talk to people who suffered persecution, you know, prepping is fine. You want to go live on a farm and, you know, have, you know, all those things. Nothing with that. But it's the preparation of the heart that is going to take you through spiritually. And so I say, know your God. If you know your God, you're a lot more likely to stand when the pressure comes. And so the, the most important thing people can do now is don't neglect your heart. Pursue intimacy with God and draw close to him. And that is what will best prepare you. I, it, what I found is it was the love for God and intimacy that I developed for him over the years that made me, it fueled my faithfulness. It fueled endurance. It's what drove me to remain faithful. Andrew Brunson, thank you so much for joining and to share your story today. It's really incredible. Best of luck in your continued missionary endeavors. And can I just add something? Uh, yeah. I, you, you know, I, I read your book that's coming out soon, and it really helps people understand where we're at now. And one thing I really liked about your book is how you uh, give uh, – Help people to start thinking, how do we adjust to the, to the new reality and prepare ourselves, prepare our churches, prepare our families? So I, I think it's a, it's a very valuable book. Well, thank you very much for saying so. I'm, I'm honored that you'd say that. And, uh, of course, I'll be uh, flogging it heavily on the channel uh, when it's available in January. So, again, Andrew Brunson, uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church pastor and missionary in Turkey, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Aaron.